reading from John chapter 20, verse 19 through 31. You'll find on page 115 in the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. We're picking back up at Easter Sunday, just after Mary Magdalene saw the risen Christ. Hear now God's word to us. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it to my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. They are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let us pray. Father, every single day, we are desperately in need of those words, peace be with you. 
I pray that we would take those words in today, that your peace would be before us. You would breathe that peace upon us. Even through our times of struggle and challenge, especially during those times of doubt. So Holy Spirit, work upon our hearts and our minds this morning, especially those of us that might be struggling with some kind of doubt in our life and our faith. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was Christmas Eve. We were singing Silent Night in the Rose Garden after the 4 p.m. service. I'm sorry to bring you back to Christmas, but we'll be there before you know it. And while we were singing, as I often do, I was scanning the crowd to see who was there. Hundreds and hundreds of people holding candles, lifting up their voices, sensing the peace of God. Every year it's a beautiful sight. As we were singing the last verse, I noticed one of our college students trying to catch my eye. Clearly, he wanted to have an opportunity to talk with me that night. We hadn't talked much since he had graduated from high school. I had tried. I had reached out to him several times with text messages over those months. But usually, I had received back just a thumbs-up emoji from him. So he waited patiently for me to finish greeting people from the crowd. Afterwards, he slowly walked up to me and he said, Thank you. I said, For what? He said, For letting me doubt. You see, while I was making my way through middle school, I just took it all in. All the stuff I was learning at church, you know, God being real, Jesus being His Son, His death, His resurrection, what the Bible says about life, I guess I just agreed to it all. I was only a kid. And then I got to high school, and it felt like everything turned upside down. My friends, even my church friends, started going in all these different directions. There were lots of issues within my family, even in my own life. I didn't know what to believe anymore, whether there was even a God at all. I was filled with all kinds of doubts. And you knew that, didn't you, Steve? I nodded. He said, this church gave me the space to work it out. Nobody forced me to believe anything, and I thank you for that. And he went on. When I first went off to college, even more doubts started to flood in. You wouldn't believe what my professors and my roommates were saying about God. At that point, I knew I had to make a choice. Either I try and find the answers, or I just give up on my faith. I give up on God, and I give up on the church, and I just go on with my life. That would have been the easy thing to do. I decided to try and find the answers. I started to attend a church, you know, a church where I could sit in the back, wear dark glasses, and just kind of sneak in there and sneak out. 
And little by little, I listened and I started to work things out. But honestly, it's all of those doubts that actually made my faith real. They made my faith my own. And so thanks again, Steve. Merry Christmas. And keep giving your high schoolers the freedom to doubt. And I said, note taken, my friend. Now, as you look back on your own life, thinking of those times when you grew most in your faith with God, where you grew deep in your intimacy with Christ, might it be it happened as a result of wrestling through a season or seasons of doubt? Think about it. It could have been in regards to whether God exists, is good, or is actually engaged in your life. Or whether the Bible and all the things the Bible says can be trusted, or whether He forgives, or whether He forgives you, or whether you should forgive someone else, or whether He provides or cares, or why He would allow a time of pain, suffering, betrayal, and tragedy. Whether Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave, whether you'll be raised to eternal life, is there life after death? The season of doubt was most likely triggered by an event that happened in your life. It challenged the way that you look at things, not only the larger view or the word we use, not only your paradigm of life, but more importantly for you, for me, it challenged how you interpret or approach your own experience in life. These doubts might have been building up over time. You knew they were happening. They were happening in your mind and your heart and it had been building up steam over time, weeks, months, maybe years. Or maybe that doubt came in in a split of a second by a text message, an email, or the ring of a phone. Whatever and whenever those doubts came in, those doubts actually have a purpose. And they actually have potential for your faith. How so, you may ask? Well, the Apostle Thomas knew very well the experience of going through a season of doubt, didn't he? Maybe it's unfair he's been given the old nickname, Doubting Thomas. I, real, I feel really bad for him about that. I say unfair because as you read through the Gospels, most of the disciples had their own season of doubt, didn't they? Working backwards, there was Peter with his denial of knowing Christ at all. There's Martha at the tomb of her brother with Jesus. There's James and John questioning which one of us is the greatest in your kingdom. And then you have Nathaniel at the very beginning inquiring of Jesus, why would you pick me? How do you know me? And this time it just happens to be Thomas's turn. Now let's remember this. This may make you feel a little bit better about your doubts. Thomas had spent over three years walking with Jesus. Think about this. He had been present at many of the life-changing events that we read of in this gospel, and still he doubted. There was the cleansing of the temple when Jesus, referring to his own body, said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. There was the wine miraculously provided for a wedding, a, a miracle that many Presbyterians just love. 
There was the healing of the sick and, and strength to walk for the lame and bread multiplied for the hungry, forgiveness for the unforgivable, a woman caught in adultery. There was sight provided to that blind man, life given to the dead man, Lazarus, and there was mercy extended to the sinner, that woman who anointed Jesus. So Thomas had seen, heard, and touched Jesus. And he was present with Jesus when they walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He heard all the voices, Hosanna, save us. He's in the upper room when they took of the Last Supper when Jesus, I'm sure, looking at each one of them is saying, this bread, this bread represents my body and this wine represents my blood. His feet were even washed by Jesus. Jesus touched the dirty feet of Thomas. And he was there when Jesus commissioned those apostles to do the same for others in their future ministry. He was even there the last day of Jesus' life. Sure, Thomas had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. But Lazarus' death was of natural causes. The death, the murder, the execution of Jesus was gruesome and devastating. There was the arrest, the trial, the imprisonment, the mocking, the torture. Jesus was whipped and beaten. He was crucified upon a cross. I can't even imagine what Jesus' body would have looked like. And there were the last words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. And Jesus bowed his head, gave up his spirit, and you read through the other Gospels, and there were all kinds of events that happened once he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And he was stabbed in the side by a Roman soldier, and out came water and blood, John tells us. He was buried in a tomb. Now, I'm sure if we were there at that site, we would have thought, this is final, this is it, this death was way too devastating. How could anyone return from this? And so for all appearance sake, hopes were dashed. End of story, game over. I can't even imagine what that Friday evening would have been like for those disciples, those apostles. Can you even picture what that long Saturday was like? And then came Easter Sunday. Word was spreading fast that Jesus had been raised from the dead. News came to Thomas that Mary had seen Jesus. And later that night, and we're not told why Thomas wasn't attending, the other ten apostles and probably other disciples in the upper room had seen the risen Christ. And rather than accepting this news, Thomas enters into a time, a season of doubt. For how long? Eight long days. Can we blame him? Maybe you can relate to Thomas. I'm fascinated by his demand. He's actually demanding something of God. Now, we can look down on him, but let's just admit it. Every person in this room at one time or another has set down a condition before God. God, if you will only do this, then I will do that. We don't want to admit that we've done that, but we've done it. 
I've done it. So he makes the demand. He lays down a condition. He's a modernist. (laughs) Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Why would such a story and demand be included in the Gospels? It's a little embarrassing, isn't it? And could it be it's here for us? Those of us who are inclined to doubt. Because when it comes down to it, we can all be skeptics. We always want to see a picture of an event that someone told us about. Even of the most important person and event in history, we want proof. And I guarantee it, we have and we will go through seasons of doubt just like Thomas. So I sat back a little bit this week, reading this passage over and over, and I thought, what do I notice about Thomas that enabled him to come out on the other side of this doubt? I noticed that he stayed in community. He could have gone into isolation during those eight long days, That's the natural thing to do with your doubt. To go inward, to be alone, to keep it to ourselves, because we might be embarrassed by it. But he was real. He shared his concerns with his friends. He shared his doubts with the entire group, and he stayed in and with that community of disciples. I talked with somebody yesterday. Again, I'm at the gym. And that person was telling me about a painful event that happened to her that morning. And she said, I just wanted to be by myself. And I said, it is great that you are here in this community. You're around people. So he stayed in community. And I don't see anywhere where Thomas was judged for that. Where he was judged for those doubts. He was willing to listen to those eyewitness accounts. The natural thing to do would be to shut everyone out, especially if that person felt they were on the outs. You ever felt on the outs of some news? You kind of want to just remove yourself from them. You want to feel isolated in a certain way from everyone on the end because you're upset with them. And yet notice Thomas was watching. He was asking questions and he was listening. He stayed there and he remained open. And he understood the personal nature of his doubts, his fears. The natural thing to do when doubts come into our lives is to stay shallow or play the victim. But what is Thomas doing here? Thomas is going deep. He's thinking through what do these wounds mean? And by calling for the proof of the wounds of Jesus, he recognized that the wounds of Jesus meant everything for his faith. Those wounds meant everything for the future of his life and the future of the church. And so for Thomas, and more importantly for our sake, God lets Thomas stay in that season of doubt for eight long days. And those eight days are going to grow his trust And give us one of the greatest confessions of faith of all time. I love the scene. Eight days later, Jesus walks into the room. 
He gave a common greeting of peace, but it's not common anymore. Because he then shows Thomas his wounds. Those wounds that make the peace of Christ a reality for him, for that community, and for us. And what does Thomas do? We don't read that he reaches out to touch the wounds. He says, my Lord and my God. That is one confession. I can remember my first week of seminary. I was 22 years old. I had been Christian for about five years. I thought I had it all together. I naively thought I had God all figured out, and then I walked into my first seminary class. By the way, the week before that class, I had a friend say, do you want to be a scholar on ice or a Christian on fire? Always scared me when he said that. <laughs> Gee. <laughs> the class was simply called prayer. And it was taught by Bob Munger, the former pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley, and he wrote that little book, My Heart Cries Home. You ever read that book? Beautiful book. He started the class by saying, before we begin to talk about prayer, we must first consider whether we believe God is good. It has everything to do with your prayer life. I want you to wrestle with that question throughout the semester. Do you believe God is good? At first, walking back to my apartment, I shrugged it off. Of course God is good. Everybody knows that God is good. And then later that week, I remember sitting in my apartment. And for the next nights ahead, I remember just being flooded with doubt. I can still remember myself sitting on the couch, just flooded with doubt. I honestly confessed deep down with God that I didn't know whether he was good or not. And I recognized that I often thought that when things were going well in my life, that God would sneak up behind me and pull the rug out from underneath me. You ever felt that way? Oh, things are going so well. Well, that just means God doesn't want us to be happy. He's going to pull the rug out from underneath me. And so I asked myself for the weeks, what is that all about? What led to that concept? And over the weeks ahead, I sought out the wounds in my past that led to my understanding of God in that way. I wrestled with it for months ahead. I, I started talking to my friends about it. I stayed in that community. I was worshiping God. I was reading the assigning books. I even took a time to meet with Dr. Munger one-on-one -on -one to talk about that. And towards the end of the semester, while reading one of the books, there was a Bible verse I came across from Jeremiah where it says, God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, never to draw back from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, doing you good. 
I will do you good with all of my heart and all of my soul. God says that. What kind of God is that, I asked. That is a good and loving God. And that became a reality to me that God is good because of the reality of the risen Christ. And because of that season of doubt, I have never been the same again. And so I say to us this morning, bring your wounds, bring your doubts. You can even bring your demands and your conditions to God. He can handle it. He is your loving Father who has adopted you into His family through Jesus Christ. You are a child of God. And He has promised that He will never leave you nor forsake. And He will help you through that season of doubt. It may be a day. It may be eight long days. It could be a semester. It could be years. But trust on Him along the way. Because He has promised that He is with us and He is good. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You accept us for who we are. For You have covered us in the righteousness and the love of Christ. And in the quiet of our heart, we do confess that there are doubts we wrestle with, sometimes regularly. Help us through this season that we may come out on the other side closer, deeper, more intimate with you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.